But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with pigeon pecking at disc. Welcome back to Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Broadback. Today on the show, Mike Bram joins me. Mike's a professor of psychology at Villanova University in Villanova, Pennsylvania. You know how many times, by the way, I've done takes on this and said Villanovia? Anyway, uh, that's just outside uh, the home of the evil Philadelphia Flyers of the National Hockey League. Mike got his BA in psychology and philosophy from the University of Michigan, then went on to UC Berkeley and got a PhD in psychology. His interests generally, of course, are in uh, animal cognition, animal learning, comparative cognition, and he's interested in using the results of behavioral experiments to make inferences about the systems controlling simple behavior and, uh, and behavioral change. Past decade or so, Mike, uh, Mike's, Mike and his students have focused on memory in rats and bees. They've used uh, a lot of done a lot of interesting stuff with uh, radial mazes, for example, and and the pull box, which is something we'll probably talk a bit about today. Um, the bee stuff, uh, in particular, I've always found fascinating. Uh, Ken Chang, an old uh, friend, and hopefully eventually a guest on the show, has always called the the, the, the bee the most uh, you know pound for pound the most cognitively complex animal on the planet. Mike's work uh, has been supported by the National Institutes of Mental Health, <clears throat> excuse me, and also the National Science Foundation. So you know he, he some people say he does some good stuff. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Brown. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Uh, great. How are you, Dave? Okay. Uh, I've traditionally, recently, been asking people how the weather is where they are. How's the weather down there? Well, the weather is very nice today. It's nice and sunny. We've had rain the last two days. but uh, Yeah, we got rain today. We, we still haven't got any snow, and uh, this is northern Ontario. There's supposed to be snow. Yeah. So while I'm opposed to you know global warming, I'm not entirely personally opposed to it. <laughs> I guess <that's>, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll we'll get snow, but we we will we will not get even half of what you get. I I wouldn't think so. Um, so yeah, you're you're down. You're you're close to the home of the Philadelphia Flyers. Yes, indeed. Um, I am about eight miles away from the Wells Fargo Center. Oh, poor poor man. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't like Philadelphia Flyers. Very much. I, I and I've never been there for a hockey game, but I have been there for basketball games. Is it a good arena to watch a like, like, like basketball in? Or eh, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's not the greatest, but right. it's all right. Yeah, we have. I mean, we have an arena that seats forty five hundred for junior hockey, but and they have basketball there. Well, sometimes our basketball team plays there, but uh, it's most it's a hockey arena. It's Canada. Every town has a, you know a high end hockey arena. Yes. Yeah, the streets aren't paved really very well, but we have a really nice arena. <laughs> you your, get your priorities straight exactly so you started out your undergrad degree from michigan right are you from michigan or that you just went to school there i did not grow up in michigan um i i have family from michigan so i had ties to to michigan um but went there from pittsburgh oh cool oh that's i think i knew that somehow so you went uh so you're at michigan and you did philosophy and psychology so a double major Correct. Yes, I, I was a psychology major from the get-go, 
my parents told me that um, you know I should probably think about a second major because psychology wasn't all that practical. <laughs> so philosophy was the choice you made then. Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about decision making later. Maybe that says something about yours. So why did psychology win out in the end uh, of those two? Um. Well, I think it 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 it's probably because one could dive in and 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 do things as a psychologist mm-hmm. get involved in you know research activity which uh acting is more up my uh alley sure certainly at that time than just uh thinking without acting yeah sitting sitting in a leather chair uh and yeah. which sounds cozy but, yeah, uh, philosophy. You know, I I I I love philosophy and mm-hmm. love talking to philosophers, but it's always seemed uh, frustrating to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean because they'll say something, and again, I, I have friends uh, also philosophers, and, and and they'll say, "Well, this works like this," and I'll say, "Okay, well, really, prove that to me." Yeah. Well, obviously, no, no, no. You can't do well. Obviously, you can't yeah. just do this with logic. Do you have any data? Well, yeah. some kind of empiricist. Hmm. Yeah, I'm some kind of empiricist. <laughs> I guess that's the answer. Is that, you know, in, I'm an empiricist by nature. So right. There we go. So, and then you decided to you went off to graduate school and you went off to to Berkeley, yeah. Yes, I did, and um, I can tell you the story. Oh, I love to hear about stories. that. That I that I tell my students. Um, I, I, you know, I had a lot of great professors at michigan mm-hmm. you know i could name five or six who who really were just fabulous um but at one point along the way i needed to take an elective mm-hmm. and had no idea what to take um there was this biology course that was uh, a, a possibility for the you know for the for the for the usual reason it fit sure. into my schedule <laughs> yeah. nicely um, but I, I noticed in the student newspaper that there were people who were protesting the existence of this course. Wow. So I figured that was the one for me. <laughs> the, the, the course was taught by um, a guy named Richard Alexander, mm-hmm. who uh, had just published a book called Darwinism and Human Affairs. Okay. And it, this was kind of in the in the shadow of E.O. Wilson's sociobiology, which sure. had been published not that many years before. So this was like 1978. We're talking. Okay. About. Um, when, the first day I went to the class, there actually were protesters oh, who, were, who were trying to tell people or that they sh- shouldn't take this course and even prevent them from going in the room. Classic. So, I, so I knew I knew this was going to be awesome. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that, oh, I love it. Yeah. So anyway, that's what got me interested in in animals, right? Um, and I got involved in doing a research project with um, a student mm-hmm. of. Richard Alexander's, a okay. recent PhD student who still did his research in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. Randy Thornhill mm. is his name, mm-hmm. and he studied um, sexual selection 
in uh, hanging flies. Cool. And the awesome thing about these animals is that the males procure and present nuptial yep. gifts. No, I, I know this work, actually. I talk about it in animal behavior, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, some of the males will mimic female behavior mm-hmm. in order to get a nuptial gift from another male. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's kind of what hooked me on studying animals. And I went to Berkeley. Yeah. I, I applied to Berkeley partly because another of another student from that same lab mm-hmm. at Michigan, um, Paul Sherman. Okay. Was, so he was a PhD in biology who was hired by the Berkeley psychology department because the Berkeley psychology department being way ahead of its time, as usual, hmm. saw the influence of evolutionary thinking about behavior sure. uh, coming. Paul Sherman went to Cornell <laughs> <laughs> that summer before I went to graduate school. Okay. Uh, so I didn't end up working with him. So kind of serendipitously... Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up in Al Riley's lab, right? Uh, and uh, that has that was that was my introduction to animal cognition, right? You know, really, it was that's a pretty of, good introduction too. Yeah, it was an introduction to animal cognition, really, for the field. Yeah, really. <laughs> Al was in in on it from the beginning. Yeah, totally. And uh, so that, that's that's how I got to where I am. It's funny. He he actually had indirectly an influence on me because there was a. Uh, big thing for him. I don't know what they call those. Is a German word, uh, but uh, and I know Sarah went, and she said that one of the things that she learned about was how when a student didn't would present something to to Al, he would say, and he wasn't sure about it. He'd say, "Write me a letter about that." Yes. Yeah, and and she came back and she said, "This is our new policy. From now on, if you have an idea that I don't agree with, you have to write me a letter." And I, I remember saying, can, can, it, can it be an email? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've instituted that now with my honor students. If they, they, they'll say to me, I want to change it like this. Said, go, go away, uh, think about it, and write me a like, two-page essay about that. And sometimes it convinces me. Uh, usually they realize that, they, you know, that I had a point. But uh, it's actually a really neat strategy. I, I think that's, uh, like I said, it really influenced me. I never met the guy, uh, but that really made a, a big impact on me uh, sort of indirectly. So, uh, yeah, that, well, I, yeah, that was Al. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I wrote several hundred letters for it. <laughs> and, and, and it was usually the start of something that became a, a thing, you right. know, a, a project, a nice. paper. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I love that approach. I just think it's great. Cause it makes you, it makes you go away and think. Uh, and I mean, the number of times that students come to my office and they say they have an idea and I say, why is that an interesting idea? And they go, well, it would be cool. Yeah, but it's, it's a question that we really care about. And that, it just, it, it's so, I just love it. I, I, I can't, and I always tell them the same story. This comes from, from this guy, Al Riley. So, <laughs> yeah. so that, that must've been a pretty good experience in that lab. I mean, like I said, early days of, of, of the field, really a pretty exciting time. It was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. Yeah, and there were some great people there too, right? Besides, of course, there were some great people there. Um, 
Bob Cook and I were there at the same time. Bob right. was uh, uh, two years ahead of me. Oh, okay. Uh, Marvin Lamb was a, a, another uh, central part of the lab at that time. Sure. And um, uh, while I was there, uh, Alan Bond, mm-hmm. who later uh, is still at Nebraska. Sure. Um, uh, Alan was there. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, several others. Uh, Evangeline Wheeler is uh, currently a professor at Towson University. She right. she was there at the same time that I was. And oh, wow. Sonia Yorg. Right. Who did a lot of work with Al Camel. Oh, yeah. Um, and is currently a novelist. A I, I found that out. It's funny because I was looking at the sort of people uh, that came through that lab and I saw her name. I went, what, you know, whatever happened to her? I, I don't know because I remember citing her stuff a lot. And I Googled her, and it's like, oh, look, she's a novelist. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I, the chance of me ever writing anything vaguely creative is almost nil. So anybody that can do anything I can't do, it impresses the hell out of me. Yes. <laughs> um, you've basically gone on, and your work has concentrated on a lot of, sort of, a lot of spatial stuff uh, and stuff with you know, different species, rat, mostly rats, rats and bees, and we'll talk about bees in a, in a, in a bit. But... Um, uh, actually, yeah, let's talk about the bees now. I mean, because y- you did some stuff and you sent me a paper about the sort of same different concept learning thing. Um, can you just walk us through, uh, walk the listeners through? You can walking us through. I've read it and you wrote it. Can you walk the listeners through the the procedure and that stuff? Okay, so um, we developed this paradigm and apparatus for testing bumblebees. Mm-hmm. In it's essentially a Skinner box for bees, right? Uh, so the stimuli are presented on a CRT screen, and the bees make choices by simply flying through one of two doors. Yes. Uh, and there's sucrose solution mm-hmm. in, in the correct, as a, as a result of the correct choice. Right. So um, in, in, um, in this first wave of experiment that we've done with this system... Mm-hmm. We uh, did a what I think is a pretty straightforward concept learning task, uh, same different concept learning task. The bees uh, made one choice if the two halves of the screen were the same color, yeah, just two colors, uh, and and uh, for other bees the two sides of the screen were two different line orientations, two different slants. Uh, There was transfer. So in other words, uh, if the the bees that were trained with color, I should say the bee colonies that were trained with color. Yeah, because people should understand typically you're not running individual bees, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's an unusual feature of this, uh, this particular experiment is that um, we really were looking at the colony as the unit of analysis. Sure. So we got the transfer from color to line orientation mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. And pretty quickly too, right? Yeah, right away. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I think the, the first thing that I thought of when I read that paper was – you know the Macintosh Wil- uh, Wilson and Bokes, the thing with the jackdaws and the pigeons, and uh, if red peck red, if green peck green, or just matched a sample, and the pigeons couldn't do any transfer when it went to yellow and blue, and the jackdaws were like, yeah, okay, whatever, matched a sample. 
And yeah. I, think, I think a lot of people would be surprised. I think a lot of people that don't think about uh, bees being complex cognitive animals, that a bee could you know, have s- such a complex rule as same and different compared to, uh, you know, if the line orientations are like this, I do this, if, or, or whatever. So it's, it's kind of cool that the, the, the transfer happened right away. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's a, a really interesting result. Um, it, we're not the first ones who have uh, found evidence for sure. same different concept learning in bees. Uh, th- this this is motivated mm-hmm. in part by a paper that was published in Nature, uh, well, fifteen almost fifteen years ago now. Right. Um, Martin Gierfa, okay, uh, along with uh, Randolph Menzel and the, mm. and the Shrinavinson group okay. in Australia, yep. pub- published this paper in 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 Nature. Um, I don't know two two thousand one, I think. Okay, where they got transfer of both matching and oddity, right, in individual honeybees. Yes. From color to line orientation, from line orientation to color, and also from color to odor. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, I I remember looking at that thinking, uh, well, it's in nature, and those guys are pretty good. It's probably a pretty – it's probably right. But then part of me is sitting there thinking to myself, oh, come on. Uh, It's like a friend of mine told me that when – the first auto shaping paper came out. Everybody thought it was neat, but everybody went and tried to confirm it in their own lab. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and and that's essentially what happened here. Is I right. I just I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, that our uh, comparative cognition community really kind of I I think ignored that paper. Yeah, it's I think you're right. A really important paper to me. Um. And uh, you know, I know, I know there are some people who just it didn't seem possible that it could be true. Yeah. Um, there is at least one very plausible alternative explanation for those results, mm-hmm. which has to do with um, a phenomenon that's, uh, as far as I know, common a- across a wide variety of bees. Mm-hmm. But certainly in honeybees, you get um, a phenomenon that the bee biologists call flower constancy. Right. Um, so the bees will tend to forage from the same species of flower. Right. Any, any particular individual bee will forage from the same species of flower, even though there may be you know, many possible sure. uh, species in bloom at the same time. Which makes a lot of sense, particularly from the flower's point of view. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so one can explain matching as a generalization of this more specific behavioral phenomenon. Right. Um, Oddity is a little harder to explain that yeah. way, but you could argue that an oddity training paradigm uh, results in the inhibition okay. of an oddity tendency. Okay. 
So part of why we did this experiment was because in our case, flower constancy won't work as an explanation. Right. Because the choice alternatives have nothing to do with approaching the the matching or non-matching stimuli. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and like, it's funny, I think people a lot of times ignore B stuff just generally. I don't know what it is. It's, you know, I was talking last episode with Jennifer Vonkin about how everybody seems to pay attention to dogs currently. Um, but, uh, in fact, I've, I've told Rob Hampton we should change the name of the conference to the Conference on Comparative Dognition. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. But, uh, uh, and it's funny because the, the, the B stuff, there's been so much stuff going on for so long. I mean, uh, Ken Chang will always tell you that pound for pound, the most cognitively complex animal in the universe is the, is the, is the honeybee. Uh, and I, I think that, and there are a lot, I mean, I, I don't know if they're easy to work with. What, what's it like working with bees? Um, it, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, they're so fascinating. They're intrinsically interesting. Sure. It's a, it's, it's a hook for getting students involved. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's a lot of fun, but it, it can also be frustrating. Sure. Part of why we are, have been using bumblebees um, is I, I, I um, got frustrated <laughs> by uh, honeybees, this, the seasonality of honeybee work. Sure. You know, there are really only three months of the year when we can get anything done with honeybees. Right. Uh, so these bumblebees are cultured colonies that they'll they'll play our game any time of year. <laughs> right. I think there are probably um, some important differences, yeah. seasonal differences, sure. seasonal uh, changes in their behavior, but we really don't know anything about that. Sure. And and. And there's only so much we can do about that because these, so far anyway, yeah. we know almost nothing about what these animals actually are. <laughs> uh, the companies that produce them are very careful to keep the proprietary sure. parts of their techniques. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not unlike <laughs> lab rats then in some respect. Well, that's true, yes. Yeah. In some ways. I just don't trust bees. They're organized, uh, and uh, they could hurt you. So, uh, yeah. But, I mean, I got a, a friend who did uh, a PhD in Dave Sherry's lab, uh, Mike Boisvert, and he did this stuff on bee timing, and he said he was never stung once. So, Yeah, well, the bee work has never been the biggest part of what sure. goes on in my lab. It's always been kind of a sidebar project, or a series of different sidebar <laughs> projects, really. Yeah. Um, but, but the story I told earlier it, it tells it, you know that that's where it comes from it oh, comes totally. from this early interest that i that i developed right and i mean you know going over to rats one of the uh, the other paper you sent me which uh, I, I really like is this idea of sort of social versus uh learning versus like individual learning like learning from another you know watching whatever and what uh, a rat learns uh, in this, uh, what do you call it, a pit maze, right? Which is just this, it's like a matrix of 25, uh, well, pits that are baited or not. Um, one of the things I like about that stuff is that it, it's, it's a nice way to tell. You can sort of tease apart how much the animal has learned on its own, I guess you can say, and how much it's learned from watching the other guy. Um, so t- tell me a bit about that stuff. Yeah, so... Um I, it's been about 
10 years since we started testing two rats together in, yeah. in spatial search tasks. And um, we've done a series of experiments in the radial arm maze mm-hmm. along those lines. And the, and the, and the kind of five minute version of, of, of what, what we know about that is that in the radial arm maze, mm-hmm. there are these two countervailing processes right. that emerge as far as social effects mm-hmm. go. On the one hand, when there are two rats that can see each other, there's a strong social affiliation tendency. Okay. So what ends up happening is that any particular rat ends up tending to make choices that are being made or have just been made by a rat it can see. Okay. On the other hand, uh, there's also a tendency to avoid the choices that the other rat makes. Yes. Or I should say that the other rat has made. Mm-hmm. And, and the contingencies of reinforcement encourage that because mm-hmm. the choice that the other rat's made is going to be an un, a place that does not, no longer contains food. So if, a, if, if, if you look at choices that the rat made a little while ago, Right. You see evidence for a social avoidance of choices made by the other rat. Okay. But if you look at the most recent choice made by the other rat, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to um, make that same choice. Right. So, you know, there are these opposing tendencies. Makes it complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit. Difficult to study. Right. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we started looking at it in a situation where, um, the rats are really forging together. They probably perceive each other's presence more or less continuously. Sure. Uh, it's simplify. We, what we thought at the time was that would simplify the situation somewhat. <laughs> yeah. So they're making choices in this open field, uh, area where there are 25 discrete places that might have food. And one of the rats knows quite a bit about where the food is because the food is always in the same five out of 25 places for that rat, the model rat, we call it. The other rat can narrow down, can learn a bit about where the food is. But uh, in order to choose very efficiently, it has to also or it could also use information provided by the choices of the model rat. Yes. So just as you said, what this, what this allowed us to do is to have a situation where mm-hmm. some of the choice behavior of the subject rat, the, the, the rat that knows less, uh, some of it we can isolate as due to its own interaction with the environment. Mm-hmm. And some of it we can isolate as due to it paying attention to the behavior of the other rat. Right. So we can look at individual learning and social learning in the same context and hopefully start, this is, this is where we hope to go with this, Sure. start to look at how those two kinds of learning interact, how they 
are similar and how they're different. Right. I mean, if I if I were John Crystal, uh, which I'm not, but if I were, I, I might say that there's there's part of this that it's almost self-referential and it makes me think of sort of episodic like memory. Have you ever thought about looking at it, looking at it from that angle? Yeah, we have. Um, um, I, I, I mean, we've looked at episodic memory sure. in this same kind of choice mm-hmm. paradigm. Uh, episodic memory for social content yes. <laughs> is something that's uh, that's of interest, but totally. we haven't really done anything like sure. that. Sure, like I said, I, I just think that I don't know. Sometimes I think I think that we and uh, that do this kind of stuff, we sometimes get a little bit too wrapped up in trying to make things seem like we're trying to please Endel Tolving. Um, <laughs> you know, and if Endel were sitting here, I'd tell him that too. Then I'd duck and tell him I was sorry. But not that he hit me. Why did I say it that way? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm well, not editing that out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I just think sometimes we get a little bit caught up in it. That's all I'm saying. I, I think it's true that that the idea of looking at something that's self-referential is important. Don't misunderstand me. But I think that we sometimes just get a little bit concerned, uh, maybe uh, over-concerned about such things. Well, it's one of those concepts we have that can unify a lot of ideas and a lot of phenomena. Fair point. And how we don't know... To what extent it's going to end up corresponding to, you know, the the, the ex- explanation of the phenomena at the at the end of the day. No, exactly. I mean, but it, it, yeah. it, it has value whether oh, sure. you know whether whether that turns out to be the case or not. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what got you interested in social learning? Because uh, I mean, this is something. This is another way, like episodic memory. It's one of those things where people for a long time said, "Don't study that. Don't study that. Don't study that." Yes, well, I, I, I think what got me interested in it is just that it seemed really important and it seemed mm-hmm. like there was very little, especially from the comparative cognition point of view, there sure. was very little known about it yeah. 15 years ago, oh. uh, you know, and, and I, I, I have to say that um, I, I think I've learned the hard way. <laughs> Uh, why that's the case, or at least one of the reasons why that's the case. Right. It's 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 not only particularly difficult as a um, topic, sure. in, you know, an empirical topic of study. Yeah. It's also very frustrating <laughs> for <laughs> those of us who 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 have the bug of experimental manipulation, you know, rammed into us. Yeah. Uh, because the one thing about social phenomena is that you cannot <laughs> yeah. control them. No, exactly. And 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 that that really makes it hard to hard, hard to make progress. Yeah, I mean I, I remember just God going back when I was doing my, my MA and reading a bunch of stuff uh, with with Sarah uh, was it a class, a graduate class and her basically saying that I don't know if anybody can ever do this. Um, and it was one of these things that I remember thinking, like, like you're saying, like, I can't control it, I can't control it, I can't control it. Uh, and, you know, I have buddies who are social psychologists, and they would tell you they can. Yeah, you can if you've got a script and it's people, buddy. Uh, it's a little harder with a rat. 
Ah, so I, I yes, one of my favorite um, experiments to talk about in in class. Yeah, uh, a set of experiments. Sure. The the, the honeybee dance language oh, I love it. Uh, work involving robot yes bees. <laughs> yeah, uh, is so compelling. Yes, and 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 I think. I think to really get a handle on social phenomena from you know an experimental point of view, yeah. that's that's the direction people are going to have to go. But it's going to be a lot harder to do that for for many of the phenomena that people yeah. are working on than than it than it is for honeybee dance. Well, I think we need someone to develop rat robots, obviously. Yes. So anybody out there, uh, perhaps Google self-driving rats would be. There you go. Yeah. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a lot of fun, uh, and uh, I imagine I booked my trip to CO3 last night uh, because it's getting really kind of lousy out, and I want to go to Florida. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll see you up there That's or down gonna there. It's going to be another great conference, I'm sure. Always is. And uh, if people want to, uh, you know, I don't know, check out stuff you're doing uh, in the lab, do you have a URL they can go to or? Uh, I do. Yes. You, you, you can go to Villanova.edu. Mm-hmm. slash michael.brown. Excellent. Yeah, check out that, and uh, you, you can see some stuff that Mike's working on. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at dbroadbeck. You can find other podcasts I do at davebroadbeck.com, broken-area.com, mmvh.ca, bestepisodeever.com, tangentialconvergence.com, and, of course, here at Spittin' Twitches. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you, Dave. It was great, great being with you. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered, or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement. The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time, You every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. the same genome and so they would try to we are a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation 
in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting. This is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the, like the host and nevertheless they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.